the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Charles Van Rees, where we explore the life cycle of data. This is a really fun kind of data extravaganza, and um, I hope that you enjoyed the nerd out of last week's episode, and we are just going to continue going forward this week. So without further ado, let's dive back into the conversation with Dr. Charles Van Rees. Okay, so I think that the next place I wanted to kind of go is talking a little bit about the life cycle of the data, because one of the things we were talking about when we were brainstorming this podcast is, you know, the dogs, we, we detect the data, we find the data. And as a handler, I generally do some amount of initial processing. You know, when I was working with bats this summer, I was measuring their wings and seeing whether or not they had a keeled call car and taking pictures of their tragus and like, basically just identifying them to species, looking at their sex, blah, blah, blah. Any other important notes that may be needed. Mm-hmm. And then I faxed, well, I, I scanned and emailed all these data sheets off into... <laughs> no faxing, huh? <laughs> yeah, no faxing, thank God. It felt like it sometimes, uh, scanning and emailing all of these just kind of like out into the great beyond. And that is not atypical for conservation uh, dog work. Yeah, We often kind of do this initial data collection and we're often kind of hired to come in to help on some of these projects. It doesn't mean we're not experts. It doesn't mean we're not stakeholders, but we kind of specialize in collecting this data. So where does it go from there? What happens to it? Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, what, what do you do with it after, yeah, you know, after you've got your, all of your data sheets filled out from your field season, what happens to it? Well, assuming that you feel as though you have sufficient data to be doing what you want to do and, and, and learning the things you want to learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, then you're typically at the analysis stage. And so you will, and just stop me <laughs> if I start getting too boring, because this is dry stuff and I'll try to make it entertaining. But like, usually yeah. you start with exploratory analyses a little bit. Okay. Um, in, in statistical inference, usually we're trying to be cautious of like mm-hmm. what they call data dredging which is like you okay. get all this data and then you're like, oh, I wonder if I'll find a thing that like means something and you like mm. test every possible combination or whatever. Like mm-hmm. the problem with that is because the, 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 the mathematical methods we're using to test whether or not something, uh, you know, implies a certain meaning or can teach us something, those involve the law of probability. Mm-hmm. Right. The law of probability being you believe me more because I flipped the coin 5,000 times than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if you do a million different tests, eventually one of them is going to like look meaningful just because you were like rolling the dice so many times, eventually you're going to get some, right? Like if you have a one in a million chance of seeing something that looks right, even though it's wrong and you do a million tests, then you're going to get something wrong. Of course. Yeah. Well, and this is Mm -hmm. related, but different from, you know, many listeners have probably heard of this example of like, well, ice cream consumption and and drowning correlate. (laughs) And it's like ice cream doesn't cause drowning, nor does drowning cause ice cream. Summer causes both. (laughs) So, which is a little different than what you're talking about, because you're talking about it like that that example is kind of an example of the the confusion between causation and correlation but you're talking a little bit more of like if i was just looking at like everyone who passed through denver international airport in a day 
and I just asked enough questions, I might be able to say that people who wear blue Nike shoes are more likely to ride Delta. <laughs> yes, but I think and the it would just is... be like a weird blip in the. But there's actually no correlation there at all. It's just a weird blip in the data because I just asked enough questions. Right, but the difference okay. here is, is is that so the causation correlation thing is that if that would be like you have an idea that what was it people with red shirts what was it <laughs> uh the, well there was there's ice cream and drowning or people with blue shoes ride delta okay so <laughs> so the difference, the difference would be these, these you're right they're similar concepts yeah uh but so one of them would be you started off with the idea that you wanted to prove that people with blue shoes ride delta and so you're kind of like you you just what did it enough time okay. so that eventually you found felt like you had those data. This one is more like let's just say we collected a ton of data on everybody's shoe color and everybody's airline choice and where they went for their horrifically overpriced airplane meal and what color their suitcase or what brand their suitcase is. Yeah. And then we took all that and just like tested every single possible correlation with no idea what might come out of it. Yeah. And then found one that happened to be a correlation. And then we declared like, oh yeah, this is a thing. Yeah. Like for real, if you're willing to pay $27 for a bagel, like you absolutely have a missing wheel on your suitcase. Red suitcase. Like, yeah. And it's just because by chance we asked so many questions, something happened to line up nicely. And sure. so it, it, okay. is, it is a similar, a similar idea, but it's more about like you started from just like, I don't know, we'll find some pattern. Like if you look hard enough for a pattern, yeah. you're going to find one and it's going to be bullcrap. <laughs> right. Which feels a lot like how when I was like before you really internalize the scientific method or like maybe kind of like high school science fair mm -hmm. style. Um, kind of. Uh, yeah, like the first time I ever got to like play with a data set or something, I was just like, oh my God, let's like see what correlates. And just like you get so excited about it. But you're talking like, so this can also happen. Okay, so so assuming yes. we don't go there. Yes, assuming we don't go there, exploratory okay. analysis is, is less about looking for all those things so much as it is trying to understand what we call your data structure. And so you're trying okay. to look at how the, you know, the differences in different qualities are spread out. Um, airplane analogy, airport analogy. If we sure. looked at a hundred different people and what are the shoe color, and we and we noticed that ninety nine people that we surveyed had blue shoes and one of them had red shoes, we're not going to learn anything about people's shoe choice because we didn't mm -hmm. have enough variation, right? So we we look yeah. at like, do we see traits in those data that indicate to us that they might vary enough to ask the questions we want, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're taking those questions you want to ask and starting to find ways to put those into these statistical models or tests that can use probability to 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 give you some idea of how likely it is that one of these things is true or not or how well the data that you've that you found collected through doggy work or what have you how well mm -hmm. that is reflecting or not one of the models we have about how the world behaves or the species yeah. behaves or what have you. Which I'm almost now realizing we've skipped a step, which would be coming up with your question in the first place and then designing your study yes, before the dogs ever go out. Yeah, before the dogs actually go out. Because <laughs> when I'm I'm going out with my dogs, I'm not just like, all right, Barley and Ifler, let's go like canvas the entire state of Colorado to find all the dead bats. <laughs> like, no, 
we're going under the wind turbines during migration because the question is how bad are wind turbines for bats during migration yeah nice yeah um you know not just like what kills bats which you know that's a question that one could ask but you would need a different study set up for mm -hmm. that so okay so we've got our question, we've got our data, and now we're starting to look at whether or not that data is actually going to be a good fit for asking our question. Would that be like an okay way to summarize in a yeah. really simple? I think so. Yeah. And then, okay. and then we had we had just gotten to, you know, then we're also figuring out how to ask those questions using usually math language of some kind, mm -hmm. because we often want what's called qual quantitative analysis yeah. in science, which enables us to to use numbers to give people a clear idea of not only what we think, but how sure we are of what we think. We can quantify, course, yeah. we, we call it quantifying uncertainty, which is a way uh -huh. of saying like, I can tell you in actual numbers, how relatively sure or unsure I am about this thing, which is really important for decision makers, right? Because they need yeah. to say, okay, how much value do I attribute to this piece of knowledge? How is this gonna affect me? They kind of have to include uh -huh. that in their decision process. Yeah, and that's your, your R value, right? <laughs> P-value? Q-value? Oh, yeah, Something depending like on yeah. the type of statistics you're dealing yeah. with. Yeah, there are lots of different ways of appro uh, approaching that. In yeah. traditional statistics, yeah, that would be your P-value. Yeah. Um, which the weird, like P-values sound great. The problem with them is that if you actually try to interpret them, it's really difficult. Like to explain what yeah. a P-value actually means is like... I get a headache. Yeah, let's. I, I should okay. not have brought it up. Um, but like, an I would, example would be. Um, I forgot that we were just having a conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but like, so an alternative, yeah, sure. right? Yeah. Is, and a lot of people, it's just, honestly, this is a bit of a cult, but this Bayesian statistics, which is a different yes. approach to this probabilistic stuff, I won't get too deep into it. But one of the nice things about Bayesian statistics that I enjoy because I interact with decision makers a lot more is, it, is if, and I actually like recently did this very intentionally, is when you do uh, statistical analysis using a Bayesian method, the output you get is an actual probability. You can literally say, oh. there's a 50% chance of this, and it means that. Uh -huh. Whereas if your yeah. p-value is 0.5, it does not mean that. It means right. a totally different thing that is really yes. obscure. Anyway, so like what I like, I did an analysis specifically so that I could say this sentence, which is true, where I, like, the government was like, should we take this bird off the endangered species list? And I was like, there is a like 96% chance that it that its populations are not high enough to do that. And I could literally just say that because of yeah. the data I collected. And so there are nice ways of communicating that. But that's what we would be doing with decision makers is we do those analyses. We would quantify our uncertainty to be mm -hmm. um, very jargony about it. Mm -hmm. And then we would probably the first step we would take is be, is by publishing it to the rest of the scientific community. So it would go into mm -hmm. the peer review process to go in a journal. And that's basically like a lot of people calling you on your stuff <laughs> for lack of a better term, right? They're <laughs> yeah. like, they're like, you, it's, a, it, it's more or less a hostile process. Like you're putting your research out there yeah. and people who are skeptical of it are going to look at it and be like, I don't know, man. And they're going to look at it with a very critical eye. Yeah, very critical. And they're going to tell you things that they're concerned about. And they are always experts in that field. Yeah. And then if it gets through that process, now it's been vetted by multiple experts. We have lots of reasons to believe, yeah, yeah, this is this means something. Then it gets published mm -hmm. into the scientific literature. 
And mm-hmm. now it is like permanently enshrined as a published thing that's out there that, you know, and there can be retractions and there can be corrections and whatever. But sure. for the most part, like that is now information that's out there that people are thinking about. And a, a new big trend that's going on in science is like open data. Like not only mm-hmm. are you communicating your findings into a paper, which is what we're doing. Like if I publish a paper, what, what everyone can see from now on when they Google it or whatever, if they have access is like what my findings were, what my calculations were, those numbers, but not yeah. necessarily what we call raw data, not the stuff that Kayla and Barley were, were picking up those raw, those numbers that you faxed me, <laughs> right? Like, those numbers are not always accessible to everyone because maybe they're just sitting uh-huh. in an Excel sheet on my laptop and they're just yeah. farting away there collecting dust. Like there's a big movement now in open data that like, no, no, no. If you're going to publish your study, you also need to publish your raw data so that mm. other people can use them for stuff. And there's yeah. all sorts of squabbling about that. But of course, um, yeah, that is becoming more and more of a thing. There are big data repositories where there's tons. And so then what happens is, again, more traditionally, without the raw data, eventually you get this stacking up of papers, of evidence, of thinking, of all these studies that have done this thing. And then maybe people will do what's called a meta-analysis where they're bringing Mm -hmm. together all the information from those studies and saying, okay, well, for real though, this time, like, is it or ain't it? And then they like go through all the studies and say, oh, Mm -hmm. ain't it, that's cool or whatever. Yeah. And then that is usually the stuff that then goes on to influence policy because we're like, hey, we've we've had like, by this point, like, 10 years and 500 scientists read this over and do a bajillion different analyses. And that like, we're pretty darn sure. And then like, yeah. and I think a lot of people don't understand that too, that like a yeah. lot of scientific recommendations are usually coming from like, no, no, like tons of people Ooh, yeah. who hate this, have looked at this and said, yeah, okay, I guess it's good. Like yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's not easy to fake it. Um, and then it's becoming, then it's going to the decision makers. So usually that, usually that involves, Maybe people more in my position who have professional scientific training so they can understand the science and take it in and synthesize it and then be and then put it in, a, in and then also understand the lawmakers and what they're dealing with and be able to communicate with them on their terms and their language. Hey, this is what this means. We think you should do this, this, you know, and, and there's a lot of um, for, for people who are interested in conservation careers and things like that, I should say along this life cycle of data, there are jobs all along that. And, yeah. you know, depending on what you want to do and where your skills lie, you will be in different parts of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent my like early career doing a lot of what you and Bali were doing. I, w- I was mm-hmm. a lot more on the data collection side, um, trying to learn those skills. Now I'm a lot more on the between science and decision makers side mm-hmm. and not as much in the analysis side. Like I have a lot of training in analysis and things like that. But mostly what I'm doing now is like taking other people's information, other people's findings and making them into a small enough sandwich that I can put it on a plate and give it to, you know, whoever fish and wildlife service or army Corps of engineers or whoever to say like, Hey, you were thinking about these questions. Here's the information. Here's the bottom yeah. line. This is what we need to think about. Yeah. Um, Would you like a side of fries with that? <laughs> yeah. <exactly>. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I think that was a good overview of kind of, you know, the life cycle of data. Maybe as we're closing out, is there anything more you wanted to talk about? Anything more you wanted to kind of dive into a little bit more, circle back to? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the stuff that that I've been thinking about and, and, and wanted to hear more from you, too, I, I think you've been much deeper into this literature than I have. 
I kind of mm-hmm. just have some, I guess, personal anecdotes of people I've run into and applications I've seen. But just talking, you know, getting, getting into those concrete yeah. examples of when, like, when and what dogs have done, what kind of col- data they have collected that has done really valuable stuff for conservation. Because I am always blown away by the applications that I come across. And some of these are so cool that it makes me really frustrated that, that there isn't more conservation dog work going on. Um, yeah. Doing what I do and knowing what I know more and more, I'm just like, geez, you know, like we could really be solving a lot. Like I could have used some conservation dogs for some of the stuff, for example, that I was doing for my PhD and it would have made my life way easier. Like they were, there were entire studies I wanted to do that we just couldn't do because for Mm -hmm. example, we couldn't find nests of these birds that like, I guarantee you a dog would have been like, oh yeah. I know, I wish I I had smell like. I wish I had known you back then because I so could have introduced you to Kyoko at Conservation Dogs Hawaii. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if she was working in Hawaii yet when you were there. So you, we would just we would need a couple different versions of time yeah. travel to make it happen. But <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what island are they on, by the way? I don't know. Okay. I think the big island. I think they're based oh, on the big okay. island, but I think they work on a couple different islands. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I ever make it back there, I'm hoping to sometime in the next couple of years or so, depending on COVID stuff, um, hmm. I should definitely go say hi to them. That'd be really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're doing some really cool stuff. I'm, I, I've got like five interviews planned with Kyoko because um, oh, they're also doing some really, really cool stuff with, they're training some sniffer rats as well for some projects where it's not oh, wow. practical to have dogs involved. I think they're doing it for avian botulism. Okay. Yeah. Um, really, yes. really cool stuff. Just like, oh my gosh, what? when I don't live in a van, maybe I need some sniffer rats too. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So do you have any particular projects in mind that you wanted to bring up? And then I can kind of talk excitedly about the dog side. Cause I, sure. at this point, I'm relatively familiar with most of the literature and most of the study designs on the dog side of things. Well, the, the two or three that I can think of that I really like, and I'll kind of just maybe rattle through them and then and mm-hmm. let you kind of take them wherever you want. But so I, when I was at, at Tufts doing my PhD, uh, we had an affiliation with some folks from the New England Aquarium because mm-hmm. like our kind of sister lab at Tufts was all about stress physiology and hormone endocrinology of wildlife. Oh, and cool. so they had people, it was super neat. They do amazing, amazing work. Yeah. That sounds like some Robert Sapolsky stuff. This guy, yeah, Michael Romero, Robert Sapolsky was his um, PhD advisor. So he is is now a very well established (laughs) professor at Tufts anyway. And he's super best friends with my PhD advisor. And he was basically my, he was like my academic uncle. Like he was so nice and just super amazing to me my whole time there. But anyway, so he had this whole interaction with these people in the New England Aquarium who are studying right whales. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I guess they, when whales poop, they take these gigantic poops that like, it's like a slurry, which is a yeah. horrible word to use. And it like floats in the ocean for a while and like mm-hmm. stanks up a lot. And anyway, so I guess, I mean, they were showing us pictures and video of like dogs on the front of like, what do they call them? Zodiacs? Like those boats, like tracking yeah. down these like poop puddles in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. And they would sample the poop to figure out if the whales were pregnant or not. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. That is just insane. So that, that was a really big one for me. Yeah. Um, and then I, I was most recently working in Montana on um, invasive mm-hmm. species work. And we were talking about occurrences and things like that. Like occurrences are such a big deal for invasive species. Yeah. We need to know where they are all the time because they're spreading. So we need to know it over time too. 
And that's yeah. where the monitoring and stuff comes up, like or what we call biosurveillance. We need to be keeping track mm. of, oh, did they leave where they used to be? This means they're going to make another move. They're going to spread again. Because invasive yeah. species, when they show up places, they cost millions of dollars. They drive species mm-hmm. extinct. They destroy people's crops. They mess up their homes. They screw up the economy. They cause these huge problems. We can't afford to let them get somewhere. We need yeah. to be a step ahead. And in most cases, it's not that it's easy, but it's easier to prevent them than it is to eradicate them. Way easier and way lower Especially cost, yeah. when we're talking about our aquatic invasives. Big time. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that, so that was what I was working on, this whole early yeah. detection, rapid response business, where basically a lot of the time, once they get there, it's just too late. And there's literally yeah. nothing you can do anymore. And you're just going to have to live with those costs. And so, uh, and, and this, I think you and Barley did some of this, right? But basically, <laughs> I, I remember when I was sitting uh, in my supervisor's office he had a he had a card that like the the, from a dog that had been sniffed by from a a, a boat that had been sniffed by some dog and do you know what breed of dog it was no okay because barley had you you've been sniffed cards that we handed out to every boat he sniffed that would be an insane coincidence if if, but so it was probably tobias or jacks who are both dogs okay. that I handled back working so at Working Dogs for Conservation. Colleagues. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And Jax is a Belgian Malinois and Tobias is a Yellow Lab. They're both okay. delightful dogs. Um, okay. But it but, could have been but, Barley. Yeah. But so I so I understand that, <laughs> you know, in, in, in these efforts to prevent the spread of this invasive muscle, mm-hmm. that they were using dogs for that. And, they're, and again, talking about sensory space stuff, these muscles, first of all, the muscles themselves are small, but they're visible to the human eye. But that's not mm-hmm. what's spreading, right? These things have a life cycle. They have right. these larvae that are like absolutely micro gosh darn scopic and you cannot <laughs> you cannot see them and yeah. they'll get stuck to your boat and you'll have no idea you're bringing that into the water but mm-hmm. amazingly a dog snoot can detect can find those them. things mm-hmm. insane Okay, Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And both of them are really cool. I'll talk about the whale stuff first because I know less about it. And I actually I'm not super familiar with the right whale stuff at all. I'm mm. more familiar with the orca stuff that's been done with um University of Washington, conservation canines, rogue detection teams. Oh, cool. um, very, very similar work. Um again with orcas and i know basically what they have done is they will put the the dogs up on the bow of the boat and they're actually following the pod of whales so they kind of know where the whales are and then based on the dog's behavior they'll steer the boat appropriately to go find that floating scat so it's not necessarily that do you call it scat with a dog feces (laughs) (laughs) do yeah do whales have i feel like scat i don't know anyway (laughs) um so it's not necessarily the same as like when Barley and I are going out to find um, hopefully Jaguar scat in a year or two, where that Jaguar scat might be a week old, but he'll still find it kind of based on the air currents. It's that you actually know that that pot of whales is a quarter mile out ahead of you. You're following at a respectful distance. I'm sure the boat operators have a huge amount of training. Um, and then you're actually like, the dog is just kind of telling you when and where that that poop is floating to the surface. And then I imagine you've got some fancy dip net bucket thing to pull it in uh, <laughs> um, yeah yeah and then you take it onto a lab and they pull out all the you know they they probably centrifuge it a bunch or whatever there i'm sure there's pipettes involved and then they do some hormone analysis to figure out whether or not they're there there's a, a bun in the oven um right, right. Which, you know, that's a whole other side of data that we, and you know, like the genetics and the hormones and stuff, because it's like, okay, how do we go from this like pile of scat that I've collected to 
knowing whether or not a whale is pregnant. Like that's a whole other conversation. Same time. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not a given, you know, um, one of the things that I know we've run into, um, I remember overhearing conversations on this when I was working at Working Dogs for Conservation, where, you know, we'd get an inquiry from some, <clears throat> some company or some organization working with a, a, a super rare animal in, I don't know, Laos. And then be like, we want to know, you know, these individual level or hormone level data for these, the species. And, you know, the first question is, well, do we actually have genetics labs that are able to identify these animals to species? Because for some animals, you actually, we actually can't do that yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you um, need to have parts of their genome characterized. You need to have the, you know, the right markers, essentially, to be yeah, able to determine Yeah, and that. for some, there's only a couple labs that'll do it, um, or only one lab. Um, so it's, that's, and again, that's like a whole other side of this data life cycle that um, neither you nor I really, we don't have time to get into, and it's also not either of our area of expertise. For sure, yeah. um, genetics was never my forte. I was literally concussed during my genetics class in college. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and then talking about the muscles, the muscles is really cool because the where the muscle work can kind of come in. And so Barley and I, that was our first um, project that he and I ever deployed on, was working in Yellowstone. And there, what we were doing is prevention okay. work. So we were we were sniffing. Well, he was sniffing boats. Um, <laughs> I didn't do, I, I walked around and I talked to people um, and told them what he was doing and gave kids stickers. Um, and um, and yeah, the, so the crazy thing, so zebra mussels, as an adult, they're about, a, kind of max, they're about the size of your pinky fingernail. They're super duper little. Um, so and you can also imagine, even though that is visible, that is something you can see, if you've got a human trying to search a hundred pontoon boats in a given day yeah it's really easy to miss an adult right, right. wrapped up inside of you know your anchor chain or rope or something like that and that's why it's so important for anglers to clean drain and dry their boats um and um because if the if the boat is fully dry the muscles should be dead mm-hmm. should be being kind of an operant thing because there have been some cases especially it does not take much water for these muscles or their villagers which are those microscopic larvae to survive and i believe that microscopic larvae can actually survive for like a week mm-hmm. in like stagnant mm-hmm. water that's like like i'm talking like less than a teacup of st- of stagnant water in the base of your boat or something like wow. that yeah. so yeah it's it's a big deal and if your boat does come up um if the dog were to alert on your boat then you have to go and generally get hot washed um oh, okay. and, which anglers are never happy about um it's not I mean, great it doesn't do anything to the boat right I don't think so, but you know, you're delayed. You know, if you yeah. were about to go launch and get on the water, you're not getting off. Yeah, the next yeah. I should hours. be more sympathetic. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, and especially we were working in Yellowstone, so we were probably working with a lot of people who may have driven 12 hours the day before to get there, and then you know wanted to get out and do their thing or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, so and there we're we're working on the prevention side. So currently, there are no zebra mussels that we know of in the greater Yellowstone river shed, watershed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really big deal if they were to get into Lake Yellowstone, Yellowstone Lake, they would then potentially travel downstream and that would infect everything else in that watershed um, because it's kind of the top of that watershed. So it's right. a, a huge deal, particularly there. It's like a, yeah, and also it's Yellowstone. Like we don't want zebra mussels in Yellowstone. Right, um, right. You know, people, people, you know, we care a lot about Yellowstone. Um, and then the other thing that dogs can do, which is really interesting, so it's a lot of it's a lot of prevention. It's a lot of just scanning the boats, and the dogs are super fast at it. 
um, the biggest thing there is making sure that the dogs stay motivated because it can be really repetitive work for the dogs and they can get kind of bored. Because one of the things that's nice about a lot of other conservation dog work is it's fun for the dog. You know, when I'm doing the windmill searches with Niffler, he's having a great time, even if he's not finding bats. For him, like running around looking for bats, searching for <laughs> bats is almost as much fun as finding the bats. Yeah. Searching boats, not so much. So there we do struggle sometimes with dog motivation, which is a whole other question. Um, which I believe, see, see my podcast with Dr. Hall, who we've talked about a couple times on this podcast, about maintaining dog motivation for long, monotonous searches. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other way that dogs can be helpful for some of these invasive species is actually looking at um, confirming eDNA. So what's eDNA, oh, nice. Charles? <laughs> um, yeah, very relevant. I've, very been, uh, relevant I've been soliloquizing. <laughs> Solilo <laughs> Solilo <laughs> this, I'm not going to hurt myself. Yeah, I don't um, know this one. <laughs> yeah. What's eDNA? Hey, everyone. Just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. <laughs> eDNA or environmental DNA is a very neat new tool uh, in ecology that we are using to detect occurrences mm -hmm. of species. Uh, so it, it's called environmental DNA because... It is genetic material that you are acquiring from some larger part of the environment. They are actually starting to, for example, acquire it from the air. Like people are filtering DNA from like particles in the air, which is not so. Uh, but more basic and more normal, <laughs> the, 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 original, the original applications uh, mm -hmm. of this were in water, in freshwater systems. Mm -hmm. The problem with freshwater is that being surface monkeys, like we are, we can't see what's going on in the water as much. You know, you got to get a snorkel and, you know, like it, it's not easy to see you what's have going scuba on. scuba gear. You might need a dry suit. Right. And you're sitting it here talking about belgers and stuff. It does. Yeah. Belgers yeah. are tiny or whatever else is tiny. If you want to know if something's there or not, a major advantage 
to eDNA is that all living organisms, and this kind of grosses some people out, but all living organisms and dead ones too, I should add, all organisms, dead or alive, are shedding parts of themselves constantly into the surrounding environment. Yeah. I mean, and this is in, why our dogs are able to track things down. Right, right, big time. Yeah. Um, we're, talk, we're talking a slightly larger particle size, I suspect, than just because dogs are detecting like organic chemicals, like organic compounds. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're looking at volatile organic compounds, although there is some really interesting debate in the tracking field in particular, whether or not mm. they're looking at that or more of these. They're kind of, they're called rafts, which is, oh. I think is a non-technical term. And I, I don't know. I, oh. Yeah, there, there's all sorts of interesting debate in, in the tracking world, which I won't dive into now because it's. I'm separate from it. I don't know much about tracking. Anyway. I'm going to ask you about raft later then. But yeah, yeah. so <laughs> uh, this eDNA is, is picking up the, in the process of like shedding <laughs> yourself into the environment all the time. You're dropping <laughs> cells. Yeah. And in those cells, there is your genetic material. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not going to be as intact or awesome as like taking a blood sample or a mouth swab mm -hmm. or something. But it's usually good enough you know, eDNA might not be good enough for you to be like, oh, Charles walked by. Yeah. But, it, with pro but in there, there are some advances happening now, but generally it's not. But what it can tell you is like, oh, there were people here. Yeah. Like you could go to a, you know, supposedly, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, so some place where it's an island and people said, oh, bats have never been here before or something. They never come out this far. You could like, whatever, test for yeah, sure. in the soil in the DNA. Or something. Yeah. Sure. yeah, exactly. And just generally mm -hmm. bad DNA, right? Some markers that all those bats share because they have a common lineage. So what we do with eDNA for invasive aquatic species is that like, it's too hard to look for villagers. You can't like, if one single villager is somewhere and you want to know that you can't like go and go through all the water in a lake. Uh, and nope. so what you can do is take these samples from all over the lake in different ways and essentially run all that water through a certain type of filter and expose it to molecules uh, and and protein complexes that would replicate the DNA if it were there, you know, and the primers mm -hmm. and things like that. And then you can detect it that way. You can you can see if it picks up on that thing. So the problem with that is that uh, it can be it's it's extremely sensitive. So yeah, which is great. So, which is great for detecting for things that are things. hard to detect. Yeah. yeah. But then, of course, if it might cost you $20 million to, like, chemical shock the lake or something to er eradicate the villagers, and it's, like, a major process, you don't want to do that every time you get an eDNA hit. Why? Yeah. Because sometimes those hits, they're not – you like, false alarms are really not a super common thing. Like, it's not that you're going to detect DNA that wasn't there. But mm -hmm. sometimes the DNA can get there in ways that you don't give a crap about. So yeah, if it we're could scared be a of these muscles, dead zebra muscle. or it could have been like a gull that like ate a muscle and then like flew from somewhere else and took a dump like a week ago. Yeah. And like, there was no living tissue. There's no threat there, but yeah. the DNA was still floating around and it was intact enough to get picked up by the assay. Um, and this is where the dogs come in is like, okay, We've yeah. got the alert from the eDNA. We don't want to take any drastic action yet. Let's yeah. look for the next best thing. Can we find living organisms? Can we find where this signature is more prominent? And I think that um, that this intermediate level of picking up the organic compounds coming from the thing, which dogs are doing, 
is more at that level where they can then do concentrated searches and they're likely to find living or dead. They're likely to find that or that tissue, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes very small. I think you've told me stories about, about Niffler finding <laughs> like Super bad small. dust essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yes. Uh, um, yeah. Bat dust. Uh, yeah. There've been a couple of times where I've been pretty sure he was false alerting and then digging around in the dirt enough. I find like, it's like if you shaved a bumblebee's butt, like that, uh, that much hair. Yeah. Like, but at least oh, then yeah. you know what it is, right? Then you know that your EDNA signature, yeah. for and example, it's, it's, came you from. You know, if it's like, if it's a hoary bat, for example, I can actually look at like, it doesn't take much hair to be like, oh, yep, that was a hoary bat. Like they've got oh, a wow. really distinctive fur, pa- fur pattern. Uh, oh. You know, good luck if it's a big brown bat um, or an mm-hmm. evening bat or something. But mm-hmm. so, yeah. And then, so there's been at least a couple cases um and i believe that um there's some conservation dogs um that were trained by working dogs for conservation but are now based in alberta i can't remember it's like alberta fish and parks or alberta game and fish or i'll get game and parks i don't know alberta there are three dogs up there they're great dogs great handlers um and they've done some stuff there as well as working dogs for conservation in Montana doing, um, yeah, they get an eDNA alert and then you deploy the dogs out to do, um, you can actually do shoreline searches as well if you train the dogs to do shoreline searches. So you can't necessarily take a dog who's only ever done boat searches and then just set them loose on the shore of a lake. But if you specifically train them, and especially if you've specifically sure. trained them to find the villagers as well, then you can yeah. actually go out to these lakes and be like, okay, is the dog showing any any change of behavior or specifically alerting somewhere. Because one of the interesting things that we can do with our dogs as well, is we're, if we're clever, is specific, you know, especially if we've got, say you've got a little, you know, maybe a little nascent colony of zebra mussels. And there's only 10 mussels. They're 10 feet offshore and they're in four feet of water. Mm-hmm. The dog might not necessarily alert to that spot because the dog can't get to that pile of muscles that all can't you know the way that like niffler and barley they get their nose on the bat and that's when they lie down and that's how i know there's a bat there but you might see the dog starting to pace and their tail wag changing and their scenting is increasing and an experienced handler can see see that and say like "Eh, Mm. you know the dog's not alerting here maybe they can't pinpoint well enough maybe it's way offshore maybe the scent just isn't quite strong enough they're just not quite sure but there's something here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dog is behaving in a way that makes me really think that that eDNA could be correct. And that that is also where um, good science, you would actually not be sure not to tell the handler where that eDNA hit came from. You might have them search a couple different lakes or something like that so that the handler isn't influencing the dog by pacing extra. Because I know, especially with barley, if I feel like he's missing something in a specific area and i start slowing down or lingering or anything i can absolutely push him into an alert and convince him to alert when there's nothing there because oh. i think that there's something there so just that's again yeah yeah because yeah. he's just like oh mom is like circling and slowing down and like looking at this log really hard or something and i've done it before when like oops this happens a lot with <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah it happens a lot with scat in particular where like i might see a pile of scat and we're looking for fox scat or something and i'm like oh that looks kind of like fox scat but he didn't alert to it when he passed it so it, but if i spend too much time fussing around it wow yeah he might then kind of be like oh oh you want me to tell you about this yeah, and, yeah. you know it, it could actually be you know any number of other species that you know the venn diagrams of what or the bell curve of what their scat looks like overlaps enough that like i as a human surgeon can't tell a difference mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. and then one of the other things and the reason i brought up the alberta dogs is they've also done some really interesting work with wild boar um where i believe they've gotten some 
I don't know whether they're using the dogs to confirm eDNA there or they're using the dogs to... <sighs> yeah, I think they're using it to confirm eDNA again, where they're actually sampling the water to find um, if the wild boars scat um, okay. in the water to confirm kind of how far west the, the boar have made it because they're an incredibly oh, wow. destructive invasive oh, big time, species. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah, there's all sorts of really cool stuff. And I really, at some point, I really want to get some kind of eDNA specialists on. And then actually, I haven't spent a lot of time really deeply reading some of the eDNA conservation dog linkage sorts of papers. Um, but that's something I would really love to do on the show at some point. But kind of the last question, and we can go over this somewhat briefly, because this is probably a podcast in and of itself that I've got at least one person in mind for. But talking about non-invasive data collection and kind of more invasive data collection what some of our options may be beyond dogs because one of the my favorite things to think about is how to combine these different um data collection techniques but also thinking about you know which are dogs the right addition to a study are or, you know, given your question, maybe, you know, again, maybe radio collars are a better option. Maybe mm -hmm. camera traps are a better option. So what, you know, I've already named two. We've got radio collars and camera traps. What are some of our other options if we're just trying to collect some of this occurrence or abundance data in particular? Ah, uh, okay. And then, of course, EDNA, EDNA. is still there and <laughs> yeah. increasingly applicable to other sorts of systems that aren't aquatic and stuff as well. Jeez. Um, beyond those... That's a good question. For some things, people will use uh, for like plants and things. Uh, drones can be pretty good, mm -hmm. uh, and also. Well, and with plants, couldn't you just walk transects and just literally like? Like oh, I, yeah. I know. Yeah, I thought you were talking yeah. about like like less effort, like not using people. Oh no, but... no, I'm just talking like literally. Like I've got a question about something in ecology. What are some of my options for answering that question? You know, we've got yeah, transects, I mean, we've got point counts, we've got camera traps. <laughs> yeah. Audio surveys are big. I mean, Ooh, for okay, what's that? Bats and birds. Both doing it yourself and going and listening, um, but also <laughs> automated recording units (ARUs). So you go okay. somewhere and at certain intervals, you're deploying these devices with microphones that are just listening to whoever's there. And okay. then you can get automated on software. Nature. Yeah. And th there's, there's machine learning software that, you know, you can train it to identify a chickadee call. And it'll tell you exactly cool. how many chickadees it heard or how many times it heard them. And it'll ignore everything else, you know, or there are ones that'll tell you how much bat activity there was and what bat species were there and things like that. You know, obviously working at a different frequency and whatnot, but that yeah, doesn't really matter to the, Yeah. Yeah. So okay. yeah, the, the audio stuff is a big one. Again, it's a, it's a sensory issue. It's different, different types of information that we're, mm -hmm. that we're recording. Cause I, so I know I was talking to someone recently who's doing some duck netting for some migration studies where they were actually setting out traps to collect ducks. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that, and that would be kind of on the more invasive. That's obviously stressful <laughs> that's pretty, for the yes. animal. Yes, individual um, capture for sure. Yeah, with birds, like mist netting is a big one. Just setting uh -huh. up these passive nets, and people do that a lot for for big time uh, neotropical migrant migration, for example, in mm -hmm. in North America, when you have these these nightly flows of migrant birds coming through, you can set up these nets in the you know in the morning or whatever, and then suddenly you're catching all these birds coming through. 
Okay. Yeah. And I know actually one of the examples that I, I used to tell a lot when I back in, back in the good old days when I got to do a lot of presentations um, <laughs> and talking about invasive and non-invasive data collection was um, I, in my mammalogy class in undergrad, we were out with some bighorn sheep researchers and they were showing us how to do telemetry and radio collars and those sorts of things. Cause they're, they're not easy. Um, mm -hmm. But they also were talking about, um, they were trying to do some hormone study or something and they the way that they were collecting the, that hormone data is they were actually renting helicopters or getting hiring pilots going out and darting these sheep from a chopper Jeez. and then going and collecting you know whatever it was a blood sample or whatever it was from that animal and you know they were kind of they were regaling us with all these stories and you know we're all these like starry-eyed undergrads like oh my god tell us more tell us more and in retrospect you know they're talking about making sure you get your dosages correct so that you don't accidentally um put the animal into cardiac arrest or something like that mm -hmm. also making sure right. that it's not too little where the animal's going to wake up in the middle of a procedure Right. And also making sure that as the animal's panicking about being darted or being chased by a chopper, that it doesn't run off a cliff. And it's just, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, it was one of those things that especially as I started getting much more involved in conservation dogs, like that story comes back to me over and over again, where I'm just like, damn, was there a way for them to get that data from scat? Cause Barley and I could have gone and gotten that a lot more easily. I, and maybe yeah. there wasn't, you know, so there, mm -hmm. cause again, there are some things, there are some stories that like scat can't tell us. Mm -hmm. Um, but, For sure. Okay. Anything else? Because I, I really should let you go. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, that's about all the ammo I had. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, we shot shot your shot, and uh, it's time to go. So, where can the uh, the good uh, people of the podcast find you on the internet if they wanted to hear more, um, follow you on Twitter, etc.? Okay. Yeah, I am on Twitter at Gulo Thoughts. G-U-L-O-T-H-O-U-G-H-T-S. Hard enough to... <laughs> every time I have to, like, take a deep yeah. breath before I go through that one. Uh, and then Instagram, at Gulo Shots. G-U-L-O-S-H-O-T-S. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's also, just alcohol, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's me trying to be funny about taking pictures, but I honestly... I'm way behind. I have a ton of nice nature and wildlife photos i gotta put up that i'm mm -hmm. woefully behind on because i've worked stuff but soon soon mo moving yeah. to a new state across the country kind of slowed me down <sighs> yeah a lot of things. i know that feeling uh, yeah <laughs> uh, and then i have a, a website where people can learn about mm -hmm. my research uh and contact me and things like that uh that's vanreeseconservation.com and then of course i gotta plug the nature guys so i am a, yes. a co-host uh on, on a, this really fantastic natural history and kind of backyard nature oriented, but increasingly also sciencey uh, podcast called The Nature Guys. And we're also on Twitter at nature underscore guys and uh, on Instagram at nature guys podcast. And also I think natureguys.org mm -hmm. is the is the website. And there's all sorts of great material on there. You can find all mm -hmm. the episodes and things like that. Yeah, those are those are places yeah. to follow up with me, certainly. And um, if people have questions about conservation careers or natural history topics or water and conservation, which is kind of one of my big professional things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, please don't hesitate to, to reach out. I'm always really excited to connect with people all over this field. 
Yeah, yeah. And we'll be sure to link to all of that in the show notes, which you can find at canineconservationists.org. Um, you can also, of course, sign up for our Patreon <coughs> and join our monthly video analysis chats where we talk about all um, all your dog training questions, um, particularly pertaining to scent detection dogs. Um, we've got a really cool mix of everything from some little, ba little baby puppies um, <laughs> learning scent detection to um, we've got a lovely, uh, gosh, he's got to be 12 year old dog who's wow. doing a lot of fun uh fun work um moving towards some weeds uh, weed detection not not weed marijuana just you know invasive <laughs> weeds uh, <laughs> and then you know we've got we've got a really cool little working cocker that's working on some cool amphibian projects we've got kind of the, the gamut oh, so wow. check, definitely check that out um not you charles unless you want to uh, i mean you're on the I board do. we can get you in for free <laughs> <I do>. uh, <laughs> um, but again you can find all that over at canineconservationists.org Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. This week's call to action is to check out eBird, iNaturalist, or Seek, which are all apps available in the App Store, to volunteer with some community science. All of them have some amount of um, ways for you to engage as a community scientist, to submit sightings of a bird, to ask other people about the identity of a given plant, or Seek actually has some really cool games and challenges that help people collect data. Um, so it's a really cool way for, as you're getting uh, moving around your environment and noticing, as we suggested earlier in this episode, um, to get involved with science a little bit more. As I said already, you can always find show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, and join our Patreon at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.